All right, good morning. Let me add my welcome to PBC. It's so good to be here. Uh, you know what I've been thinking of coming into this morning? There's this passage where Jesus gathers with his disciples and he says, I have eagerly awaited to eat this meal with you. And that word for eagerly awaited is actually the word for used elsewhere for lust. It's this like strong desire. And that's what I feel coming together. You know, we've been building this room and I have eagerly awaited to be in this room with you, worshiping together and it has not disappointed. So uh, thanks to the band and for all, you guys have no idea how much work has gone into just being here. So thank you to everybody that's made that happen. And uh, it's great. Well, I thought I'd start off telling you about um, my fifth grade life. See, fifth grade was like the pinnacle for me. Fifth grade just seemed simple. I was, uh, I was class president. We played Foursquare during recess. We would... Uh, swing on the swings and just talk. Uh, you know, everybody was everybody's friend. It was just like very simple. I just felt like everything worked in fifth grade, right? And then from fifth grade, I went to sixth grade. And in sixth grade, I moved up from Coleytown Elementary School to Coleytown Middle School. And the middle school fed a couple different elementary schools, so there were new kids. And I went from being the, the, the top of the school to being the bottom of the school, and sixth grade was just the worst. It was, uh, I didn't know what to do, there were new people, there were new social dynamics, and it was, uh, it was a real struggle. Sixth grade was like this just valley for me. And I thought about that, about how quickly things can change, and how that's true for a lot of us, that we experience things, and, and sometimes things are going great, and we look around, and we just so full of gratitude and so optimistic. And then something might happen, and all of a sudden the bottom drops out. Our circumstances change so quickly. And when that happens, when things change, that's where we, we just tend to, to ask that question, where is God? Where is God when things are changing? And how does, we've sung about the goodness of God, how does the goodness of God work when the things of my life are so transient, are so flexible, are so changing. Well, this morning, the story that we're looking at, we're going to see Joseph making some uh, economic decisions as the leader of Egypt. And for the Israelites, these decisions that he makes are going to lead them into great prosperity. It's going to be a season unlike they have ever known. Uh, they're going to go from the bottom to the top. But his decisions are going to affect the Egyptians in a very different way. And so as we look at these decisions, we're going to be thinking about the economy that the Israelites and the Egyptians live within. But we also want to be drawing our eyes upward to ask the question of what God is doing. In the midst of changing circumstances, what is God doing? And for us, how do we live in God's kingdom economy versus being trapped within the changing winds of our own circumstances. So uh, we live here on earth. We live in an earthly economy. We have to make money. We have to buy food. We have to pay rent. You have to function within the system that this earth runs by. And so we, we can't minimize that. And sometimes Christians have, taken the, uh, have gone a little too far to say, you know, what's here is not important. But we can't do that. We, we need to be in this place 
At the same time, we need to figure out what it means to live in the heavenly kingdom. Now, for the Old Testament, the the main theme of economy was the land. All throughout the Old Testament, the land is this major theme. This is how God shows his blessing through the land. Uh, It shows up in the first pages of Genesis where God creates a land and creates people for the land so that the people might manage that land. Shows up in Genesis 12 where God promises Abraham, I will bring you to a land of your own. And a lot of the overarching story that we've been looking at in Joseph is filling in the details of how God's people eventually got to their own land. Even now, land is important. Susie Orman is a uh, financial guru. She said this, owning a home is a keystone of wealth, both financial affluence and emotional security. That's, of course, why living in the Bay Area is so very challenging, because it's so hard to own land here. It's the reason why a lot of people move. It's the reason why being here can fill a lot of people with a sense of instability, a sense of insecurity, because you feel like you don't own this property. It's the American dream, right? Come to a place, buy a home, settle down. Well, it turns out it's also the Egyptian dream, and the Israelite dream, and the Assyrian dream, and the dream for most people in most times. There's this deep connection we have to the land and to the sense of security that it gives us. But what happens when you don't have land? What happens when your circumstances change? How do you function then? And that's what we're going to see this morning, how God enters in amidst all those changing things. So we're going to look at our passage in three parts. First, we're going to look at the kinds of decisions that Joseph makes. We're going to look at the economic impact of Joseph's decisions on the world that he lives in. Then we're going to think about our own world, think about some of the changing uh, dynamics that we live among and some of the forces that we face. And then finally, we're going to ask what, what Jesus has to say about all this. We're going to see how Jesus might help us to cut through some of this and give us a bit of clarity. All right. Well, you may not have woken up this morning thinking, I'd really like to understand how land ownership policies transformed the ancient Near Eastern economy in second millennium BC Egypt. But if you did wake up thinking that, you are in luck. You came to the right place, because that's what we're going to be talking about. But the main point that we want to observe is, is not what happened to the economy in Egypt, although that's what our text describes, the main point is, what is God doing behind the scenes? So we're going to back up one week and one verse and look at the the verse that concluded our last week's sermon. And what we particularly want to notice this morning is the contrast. This text is written in a way that highlights the contrast between the experience of the Hebrews and the experience of the Egyptians. So we're going to read Genesis 47, verse 12, which is from last week. And that says that Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. And remember that there was a famine going on, so that food is critically important. And then at the end of our passage, we get a bookend verse that essentially repeats the same message. Verse 27 reads, 
Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So our passage is bookended by these two statements of how Israel fared in Egypt. And this is a miracle story. This is a story of the family of Jacob literally going from famine to feast. They had nothing. They wondered whether they were going to be able to eat, and now they were living off the fat of the land. God provided for his people in a powerful way. And we are meant to to celebrate that, to notice how God provides over and above for his people. So those are the bookends, but in the middle of this passage, we see that the Egyptians faced a very different experience. We're going to walk through the process of how the famine affected them. It begins in verses 13 to 14. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So for the Egyptians and for the Canaanites, Joseph sold them back the food that he had gathered from them years earlier. So much so that all of the money in the land was transferred from individuals owning that money to being in the royal treasury. Joseph collected all the money early on in the famine. The story continues then in verse 17. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all of their livestock that year. There's no money left, so the Egyptians still needed food, so they traded their livestock for food in the next year. And eventually, Pharaoh, the the state of Egypt, owned all of the livestock in the area. Story continues. Verses 20 to 21. So Joseph bought all of the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. So now the people trade their land, their property, for the food that Joseph gives them and they sell themselves into slavery to Pharaoh. So at the end of this famine, what Joseph has managed to do is to transform Egypt from a place where people owned property, they had money, they had livestock, they were independent, they were free, and now at the end of this period, Pharaoh has all the money, he has all the animals, he has all the land, and everybody lives essentially as a a sharecropper serving on Pharaoh's land, working for him, being fed by him. Now, as we were kind of preparing how to divvy up the story of Joseph, I really wanted to preach this passage because this story just seems really curious to me. I had a lot of questions. I wanted to study it in more detail to to ask, what are we to make of what Joseph has done? Is this a good thing? Is Joseph a hero here for saving everybody? 
Or is he not so much a hero by essentially forcing them to sell themselves into slavery? And as we look at this, we're going to have some questions about what Joseph did or didn't do. And all of those questions won't be answered. We're going to leave here with questions bouncing around in our mind. Now, it's tricky to look back 4,000 years and judge the economic decisions of a ruler in a very different culture, in a very different time, and, and to, to pretend as if our you know, democratic economic principles could be applied. So, so we want to be careful about overreaching as we consider Joseph's actions. But there's a few things that we can observe. First of all, it doesn't seem that the Egyptians themselves were upset with Joseph. In fact, when we look at uh, verse 25, we read this. They said, these are the Egyptians, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So they uh, seem to be grateful. The Egyptians seem to think that Joseph has done them a great service in saving them. And so I was uh, trying to think about the economic decisions here, and one of the members of our church is a PhD student at Stanford in economics, so I thought, well, he might know something I don't. So I chatted with him about all of this, and uh, he pointed out that world leaders, governments, have a very poor record when it comes to managing through climate crisis. Over the history of the world, typically, huge numbers of people would die when climate crisis strikes a region. Um, and you can think in our own country how, how well people think our government has managed a different type of crisis. And there's certainly different opinions, but the idea that Joseph managed as a central government to, to safely steward the people and save their lives in some way is remarkable. So we should give Joseph credit for that and recognize that uh, the people themselves noticed this and were grateful. On the other hand, um, what happened when Joseph did this is he created a disparity. We read that the Egyptians ended up owning nothing, and yet at the end of the section, if you remember, it said the Israelites gained possessions in the land. And so there's this stark contrast between the Egyptians who lost everything they owned and the family of Jacob who gained possessions. They actually became more prosperous during this crisis than the Egyptians. Now, what's interesting about that is the language that's used here at the end of this section. It says the family of Jacob was fruitful and multiplied. Then when we get to the next part of the story in Exodus, Exodus opens up describing how God's people were oppressed by Pharaoh, how they were forced into slavery in Egypt. And the reason it said they were forced into slavery uses the same language. It says they were too numerous because they had been fruitful and multiplied. So it seems as if there's this link, this, this connection between the fact that the family of Jacob was prosperous at first and the Egyptians suffered and then within a generation, that disparity just flipped. And the Egyptians probably came back into some form of ownership, and the Israelites became slaves. Now, it strikes me that this is often the way that systems work. This is the way that worldly economic systems work. Our systems in this world create winners and losers. 
They create those on top and those on bottom. And often, if you wait long enough, those things flip. It's not as if those things are permanent, but often the people that were on top all of a sudden find themselves on bottom. People that were on bottom might, in a few generations, find themselves on top. So as we think about this in terms of what Joseph did, we might ask some of these questions. Did what he did, did Joseph's decisions contribute to the oppression that his people faced for 400 years? Did he essentially stack the deck against God's people so that the Egyptians responded by oppressing them? Maybe he did. Should he have done something different? Was, was there another option? Was there a different way Joseph could have gone about this? Was there some way where, where that God's people may have escaped that oppression? We don't know. See, I think this text invites us into this story in a way that wants us to ask these questions. We're, we're supposed to see these connections and, and wonder, could it have been different? Could it not have been? Did Joseph do the best he could, or, or was he just unfairly favoring his own family? See, a good story does this. It invites you to ask questions, to wonder, to speculate. And I love questions. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we're, we're uncomfortable with questions that don't have answers. But, but a good story forces you to ask questions and often just leaves you there. And that's how we get drawn in. We get drawn in to say, what is going on? What, what did happen? What, what was God doing? And honestly, we're not quite sure. So it's okay to have questions. We don't get all the answers we want, but there are a few things that we know. We know that, that God predicted this. We know that God expected these 400 years of oppression. We know that God used Joseph to save not only the family of Jacob, but the world around him. We know that somehow God redeemed this evil action of Joseph's brothers to do something good for Joseph and the world. And so when we take a step back from the ups and downs of, of the earthly system, we can realize that God's story cuts this arc through all of that transition with some level of permanent work and purpose of God. God's plan is always working, and we know that God's purpose is always to reveal himself, to show his glory to the world. And so no matter what's going on, we are aware of this fact that this is God's story for his glory. This is God's story for his glory. Joseph is sold into slavery. Then he's elevated to the chief of Potiphar's servants. Then he's thrown into prison. Then he's elevated to second in command over Egypt. And then his family, which is starving, gets elevated. And they live in Goshen and everything goes great. And then they're oppressed for 400 years. And then God saves them and he gives them a land and all of these ups and downs, all of these changing circumstances, which I think mirror all the kinds of things that happen in our lives, all of those are bits and pieces of God's story for his glory. And so there's a contrast then between the system and how it affects us and what God is doing. And sometimes it's helpful to realize how precarious 
the system really is. This is how the author of Ecclesiastes says it. It's Ecclesiastes 5.15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Did you know that the Queen of England owns approximately one-sixth of the landmass of the earth? This is interesting to me. I didn't understand this economic policy. Apparently, the queen holds title to all of the commonwealth of British commonwealths, whatever, that, whatever the word is, the, the properties. So that includes Canada, Australia, New Zealand. All of those illegally are owned by the queen and then rented out for various purposes to various peoples. That being true, even the Queen of England shall take nothing for her toil that she may carry away in her hand. Even if you own land, even if you own one-sixth of the land of the world, you take nothing when you leave. My children are, are mostly in high school, and so they're, one of them's gone off to college, and, and so they're starting to think about leaving. And they, we had this conversation a few months ago where one of them asked me, um, Dad, well, we still have our rooms when we go off to college. And I took this as a teachable moment because they, they misunderstood the economics of our home. So I explained to them that they don't actually have rooms, um, that I have many rooms, and um, out of the goodness of my heart, I, I allow them to live in some of those rooms rent-free, but that that contract has a time duration, and it will, uh, it will end. She's like the Queen of England. Like I, it's all mine, right? So, so that was a, a helpful, teachable moment in the life of our family. So we all live in these economic systems and, and we have to figure out how do we function within them. Now, here on earth, we, our lives are dominated by what's true. Do, do I have a room? Do I have a house? Do I have money? Do I have investments? Do I have a job? Those are the, the questions that fuel so much of our concerns. I spoke to a a friend this week who recently suffered identity theft. And so old credit cards, old bank statements, old loans, accounts, they were all hacked. And, and you know, every day there was a new fraud and a new situation and new risk and vulnerability. And he just spoke to me of, of how violated that felt. Because these are the realities of our lives. We, we take for granted that, that we have money in a bank and it's going to be there when we need it, that we have a place to live. And yet, everything changes. Our circumstances are always changing. And sometimes we can ask the question that we've been asking of Joseph, what, what ought the system to be? There are absolutely helpful times to say, could the system that, that we live among be better? And as Christians, we have a sense of, of justice and fairness so that we want to improve the systems, and, and, and we can't ignore that. I've had some really interesting conversations in the last few weeks thinking about all these economic ideas around the economy of today. And uh, one, one uh, newcomer to PBC recommended this book to me, um, arguing about cryptocurrency, about Bitcoin, which is a new form of digital currency, uh, and this book is, is titled, uh, Thank God for Bitcoin. And the argument is that cryptocurrency actually offers a, a more biblical manner 
of establishing an economy that is fairer to more people. So I hadn't heard this argument and it was very, very intriguing to me. So, so maybe that's true. Maybe we should pursue that. We, we live in the midst of all of this and some of us are doing great. For some of us, the system is working. We are like the Israelites. We are fruitful and multiplying. We are gaining possessions. Things are going well. And we have to make decisions about how to pass on wealth and how to be generous with wealth and how to handle the blessings God has given us. But others in our world are not doing so well. Others are struggling to, to figure out stable housing, to figure out employment that works long term, to provide for their families, to just live in this area. And so we have these contrasts, contrasts over time when things change, contrasts within our community, some people doing well, some people doing not so well. And in the midst of that, we have to ask, we have to, to draw our eyes up and ask that question, where is God? Where is God in your story? Maybe you're doing great. Maybe you're at the top right now, but that might not last. Where is God as you're doing well? Maybe you're not doing well. Maybe you've suffered a lot or you've lost a lot. You're, you're struggling to make things work. Maybe that won't last either. Where is God in your financial hardship? What is God doing in the midst of all of these things that happen? And if COVID has taught us anything, it's that things can change really quickly. How quickly the world went from just normal to everybody staying at home, just the, the rapid transition. I mean, it was dizzying how quickly life changed on a global scale. My friend who uh, suffered identity theft talked about security. He said, this is what we want. This is what drives a lot of this. We want to feel secure. We want some sense of stability. And so we convince ourselves that, that we have it. We convince ourselves that the systems can be trusted, that, that, that the economy we live in is going to be there when we need it. But what if we're more vulnerable than we think? What then? What does God do then? How, how does God interact with our vulnerability? How does he step in? Well, as God worked in the Old Testament, as I've said, the, the theme was one of land. And so early on, God promised his people, I will bring you to a land of your own. He promised them that sense of security. That's what they desperately wanted. But when they got there, this is what God said. This is Leviticus 25, 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So God wanted his people to understand that the land belonged to him. And in fact, the, the, the economic policy God devised of portioning out the land was revolutionary in its day. It was, it was just in a way that, that, that violated a lot of ancient principles so that actually people could function as if they owned land in a much wider and more fair way than most ancient cultures. But God wanted his people to understand that the land was his. 
Some of you have a piece of paper. Uh, you think it's a very important piece of paper because that paper says that the county of Santa Clara or the county of San Mateo or, or some local county recognizes that there is some portion of dirt and rock and clay that belongs to you. You own that land because the county of Santa Clara says you do. But don't be fooled. You don't own anything. Who is the county of Santa Clara? They, they didn't exist hundreds of years ago. They may not exist tomorrow. We don't know. What does that paper really matter? Others of you really, really want a piece of paper like that. You don't have that paper, and you think, if I could just have a paper like that, then my life would be better. Then I would have that sense of emotional stability that Susie Orman talked about. But don't be fooled. That piece of paper is not going to change anything on an eternal perspective. It will absolutely change some things in the short term. It will, it will change some of your daily life, but it will not have an eternal impact because why? The land is God's. And it turns out that me telling my kids that they didn't have rooms, actually the truth is that I don't have any rooms either. <laughs> that I don't have a house. That everything belongs to God. That all of this earth is His. And we are but sojourners on it. So even when God's people came into the land, he wanted them to understand that this is not the kind of permanent thing that they thought it would be. And then fast forward hundreds of years, and then Jesus comes on the earth, and what does Jesus say? He changes our orientation to what we expect from God. Listen to John 14, verse 3. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So let's think about what Jesus is saying that he is going to do. Jesus says, I'm here on earth with you right now. And as we know, uh, Jesus died and he came back and he went away. And Jesus said, what I'm doing when I go is to prepare a place for you so that you can come and be with me and live in prosperity. Now let's think about the story that we looked at this morning. Joseph was in Canaan with his brothers and then he died, or, or at least his father thought he died. But in reality, he went away. And while he was away, he was carrying out God's plan so that at the right time, his family could come to him and live in prosperity. Joseph was, in effect, preparing a place for God's people. And so Jesus is doing the same thing that we saw Joseph doing. And what we can observe then is that there's this story of God. There's this work that, that God is about that we are meant to see and we are meant to be drawn into. See, when God's people get to Egypt, we read that they were fruitful and multiplied. That was what God told them to do in Genesis. This was what life was supposed to be. And so when we get to 
be with Jesus in the place that he's preparing for us, we will come into our own. We will finally experience what life was meant to be. And what we realize then is that perhaps this story of Joseph, perhaps the the economic transformation that happened wasn't meant to teach us an economic lesson, but a spiritual lesson. Perhaps it was meant to prepare us for the time that we will really have a place and not just a land on earth, but a heavenly dwelling that will be ours for eternity. And so then the challenge for us is to live in that story, to not be so consumed with this earthly economy that we forget what God is doing. The call then is to live in God's economy. On earth, there's never enough. We always need more. We're competing with each other. There's winners and there's losers. There's frenzy, there's desperation, there's panic to make life work. But in God's economy, there's plenty. It is distributed fairly. There is a loving king who takes care of us generously. There is peace and rest and love and goodness. This is the kind of kingdom, this is the kind of economy that we were made for. And the challenge then is to to live there now, to figure out how how to orient our hearts in that direction. A friend that I was talking to with identity theft said, you know, one positive of this is that my grasp on my stuff has lessened. This, this challenge, and it is, has been a challenge, it's been horrific, but he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to my stuff less than I was. How do we get there? How, hopefully it doesn't involve the kind of tragedy to, to show us how vulnerable we are. But when we arrive there, when we can live in freedom, in God's economy, Everything changes. Our whole attitude towards the world is redeemed. I want to invite the band back up, and I want to invite us to just just think one more time about uh, that transition I made from fifth grade to sixth grade, the the social dynamics, the the people involved, the new school, the new place, and and how challenging it was to, to go from being the top to the bottom. And think about maybe some, some situation that you're facing, some, some place where you're, where you're struggling with those daily types of decisions, those things that, that consume so much of our experience. And then ask that question, what if some of those things weren't the real point? But what if their goal was to point you to Christ, to help you to see him in your life, to help you to ask that question, what is he doing and how can I pay attention to it? See, we want that kind of security. We want to know that there is stability, but it doesn't come from the system of this world. It comes from Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful picture of what it looks like to live in your economy. Thank you that that you are 
good to us, that you bless us, that you invite us to be aware of that, that even as things change and we're on top or we're on bottom, we can know that our ultimately identity, our ultimate property, our ultimate future lies in your hands. Help us to rest in your provision, to live in that freedom. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. The king of my heart be the man.